I want you to turn with me this morning in your copy of God's Word to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. I love casseroles. And judging from a question that I ask on Facebook, I'm not the only one. We love us some casseroles. I ask on Facebook to, to tell me what your favorite casserole is, and, and I got over a hundred responses. Now, now some of them I, I don't think I would particularly like, but a lot of them I think I would love, and I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask for these, these recipes for these casseroles. Let, let me give you some of the casseroles that, that people gave to this question that were their favorite. Pineapple, tartiflette. I'd never heard of that, but that's a French casserole that has potatoes and, and rebloken cheese, bacon, and onions. Sounds pretty good. Paula Dean's chicken and rice casserole. If it's from Paula Dean, it's got to be pretty good. Corn casserole, breakfast casserole, Jimmy Buffett's cheeseburger in paradise casserole, Mexican casserole, and then tallerine. I don't have a clue what that is. I'm going to look it up and try to find out, but, but tallerine casserole. When, when Sherry and I first got married, she got a recipe for a sausage casserole that, that I could literally eat every single day. It's not a breakfast casserole. It's a, it's a dinner casserole that has chicken and noodle soup with sausage and lots of cheese and other things. And it is absolutely incredible. Every, every single Thanksgiving, we have to have the green bean casserole. And, and typically, if we're going to eat hamburgers or we're going to grill out and do ribs or something like that. We've got to do the hash brown casserole. And then there's that dessert casserole, sweet potato casserole. I'm not a big fan of sweet potatoes, but, but I tell you, you put that brown sugar on, on those sweet potatoes with some cinnamon and other things. And I mean, it's the dessert to end all desserts. And then there's my favorite squash casserole. Now, listen, I hate squash. If you're a lover of squash, then, then understand you've been corrupted by the fall. Squash was a result of the fall when corruption came to the earth. It, it, it's, not a, it's not a good plan. It's a fallen plan. But you take that squash and you mix it with the right amount of mayonnaise and cheese and some other things. And oh my goodness... That squash casserole, it is good. Someone pointed out to me on Facebook from, from years past. They said, I remember when you didn't like squash casserole, Pastor Rocky. But someone got you to eat it at a Wednesday lunch. And you loved it. And then she said, remember that? And I'm thinking to myself, I sure do. Because I could eat it, the entire bowl of it, whenever my wife cooks it. Now, casseroles when it comes to food are a wonderful thing. They're a good thing and, and they can be good for you. But when it comes to our faith, when it comes to God, a casserole faith, a, a casserole Christianity is not only disgusting, it is dangerous. And, and you need to understand that it can be destructive. You see, when we mix a little bit of faith, a little bit of Christianity with, with a little bit of the world or a lot of the world, it becomes a disastrous thing. 
And, and that's the key truth that we learn in Judges 10 through 12. We learn the danger of a casserole faith, the danger of a casserole Christianity. Now, as we read through these three chapters, we discover there are six judges. But five of these judges only get 12 verses between them. We read about Tolan, and he judged Israel for 23 years. But the only thing we know about him is that he was the son of Dodo. I can imagine that he was picked on as a kid. Well, there's Dodo's son. And then there was Jair. Jair ruled for 22 years. And the Bible tells us about him that he had 30 sons who had 30 donkeys and they ruled 30 cities. And that's really all we know about, about Jair. And then we come to the end of chapter 12 and we read about Ibsen who ruled for eight years. He had 30 sons and daughters. That's what we're told. And Elon, who ruled for 10 years. And, and finally, Abdon, who ruled for eight years. And we're told that he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. And, and they rode 70 donkeys. Now, probably you're wondering by now that chapter 10 talks about these people riding donkeys. And the end of chapter 12 talks about that. And you go, why in the world? Well, because in that day, only the wealthy could ride donkeys. You see, today, we, we think about riding a donkey, that, that's not very good. But in that day, if you rode a donkey, it was a sign of your wealth, it was a sign of your prestige, it was a sign of your fame. But that's really all we're told about these five judges. We're not told what they did, we're not told how they lived, we're just told that they ruled for a certain period of time, and, and we're told a little bit about their family in some cases. That's it. But couched in between these five judges is the story of Jephna. And evidently in his story, there are some vital truths that God wants us to learn. Now here's what I've discovered. Oftentimes, we have this idea that, that we can only learn from those who succeed, who follow the Lord wholeheartedly. But the truth is... We can learn from anyone. We can learn from everyone. We can learn from people's successes. But we can also learn from people's mistakes. That's why when I read, I read a variety of people. I don't just read the people that I know that I'm going to agree with. Because I can learn from anyone if I have a discerning mind. And we see that very clearly in this passage. Because when we look at Jephna, we discover that God can use anyone. Even people that make terrible mistakes. And we discover that, that what we need to do is, is we celebrate people's victories and we learn from their mistakes. But because all of us are flawed people and all of us are prone to messing up and blowing it and making mistakes, we need to be very careful setting people on a pedestal. Now, here's what Eleanor Roosevelt said about learning from people's mistakes. She said, learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. And that's true, isn't it? And so when we're reading the Word of God, we're not only seeing things that we need to do as we read these stories of people's lives. We see things that we are to avoid. 
We see things that we are to watch out for. We, we see things that we are to stay away from. And, and that's really what we see in the story of Jephthah. Because the truth is, we learn more from the failures in this story than we do from the victories in the story. Now, as I studied these, these chapters, there were six truths that, that really popped out to me that, that I want to share with you that I think are important for us today. Here's truth number one. The longer we continue in a cycle of sin, the more enslaved we become. Now, let me say that again because that's so important. The longer we continue in a cycle of sin, the more enslaved we become. Listen to what it says in, in chapter 10, verse 6. It says, again, the Israelites did the evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and they served the Asterisks and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because Israelite forsook the Lord and no longer served him. Now, I want to stop right there. Because what we see in this verse is that over and over again, Israel is repeating the same old pattern. We're reading the same old story. God's people did evil. They served false gods. And because they did evil, because they served false gods, they were enslaved by those false gods. Have you ever stopped to consider why it is so difficult to break the cycle of sin? Because in my experience, I've discovered that it's a difficult thing. When, when we repeat a cycle of sin once, twice, three times, it becomes more and more difficult every time to break that cycle of sin. So why is that? Why is it that the deeper we get into sin and the longer we stay into sin and the longer we repeat the pattern over and over, it becomes more and more difficult and we become more and more enslaved by it? Could it be? That sin, all sin, is not simply a failure of the flesh. All sin is the worship of other gods. And those gods are seeking to enslave us. You see, all, Satan's ultimate desire is to get you to redirect your worship from God to him. That's what Satan desires. So he takes what God has created for our good, and he uses it, he abuses it, and he causes us to worship it and eventually be enslaved by it. You see, it's not just greed that you're battling against. It's the gods of this world, the demons from hell, who are using money to enslave you. It's not just your, your sexual desires you're battling with. It's the gods of this world who are using sex, something God created, something God established to enslave you. It's not just your, your struggle to maintain biblical priorities that you're battling against. It's the gods of this world who are coaxing you to put other gods before the one true God. That's why I don't believe that, that programs for addictions that leave out the spiritual element or, or water down the spiritual element will have lasting 
consequences, lasting successes. Because ultimately, we're not fighting just an addiction. We're fighting the spiritual power that is behind the addiction. Now, now notice this. Notice what it says. They served the bells and the asterisks. We've read that before. But it doesn't stop there. It says they served the gods of Aram and Sidon and Moab and the Ammonites and the Philistines. Did you get that? I mean, they were serving every single god that surrounded them. Count them. There are seven gods or gods, plural, that the people of God were worshiping. Now, in the Bible, the number seven is the number of completion. And so many people say what, what this is saying here is that they had completely abandoned God and they had completely immersed themselves into the culture and the gods of their world. Now, many people don't want to hear this, but, but I believe that we are doing the exact same thing today in America. In America, we have something that's incredible. It's called freedom of religion. And it was created to protect various groups. At that time, it was primarily denominations, Christian groups, to protect various groups. So, so different people, the Baptists, were, were, not, were not persecuted by, by the Episcopals, the Church of England. The, the Puritans weren't persecuted and, and all of these things. So you had this, this freedom of religion. But what we've done is we've turned freedom of religion into equality of religion. And, and that can't be true because all religions can be equally valid. It just can't be. And so when we're trying to say that, that all of these truths, all of these teachings, all of these religions are valid, and we create this smorgasbord, this, this casserole of faiths in our culture, it eventually is going to enslave us. And here's what Max Sanders said. He said, in a culture where religious truth is relative, moral relative moral relativism is not far behind. In other words, when religious truth is just relative, what's good for you is good for you and it doesn't matter, then moral relativism is going to follow that. Edward Gibson in his classic book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, said this. Listen to what he said. During the last part of the empire, all religions were regarded by the people as equally true. By the philosophers, the educated, as equally false. And by the politicians, as equally useful. <laughs> and is that not true today? We're living in a culture where the majority of people will tell us that uh, there are many ways to heaven. The God that the, the, the um, Buddhists worship, the gods that the Hindus worship, the gods that the Muslims worship. They're, they're the same as the God that, that we worship. We're all worshiping the same God. That's what the, the people say, the masses say. The intellectual people will say religion is just a crutch. <laughs> it's just something that man has invented to give himself stability. And that's what our, our, our people in our ivory towers called our universities will tell us oftentimes, and then our politicians, they'll use every religion. 
And they will use every religion. So don't be fooled by politicians. That's where America is today. And so we need to be very careful. In speaking for God, the prophet Jeremiah said this. He said, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the springs of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, what God said to the prophet Jeremiah is, you abandoned me and you replaced me with gods that are less than gods. I give you living water. They give you dirty, muddy water. And the cisterns that you have won't even contain and hold the water that you want them to hold. So the first thing we need to see is this. When we get into a cycle of sin, it enslaves us, it ensnares us, and it becomes more and more difficult to get out of it. Here's the second truth in this passage. God is patient with us, but his patience has limits. Look at chapter 10, verse 7 and following. It says, he, God, became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you've forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to those gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that God's love for us produces anger when we give our love to someone or something else. God's love is an everlasting love, but understand, His love is a jealous love. So notice what God does. It says that He sells them into the hands of. When you sell a car... That new owner can do with that car whatever he or she wants to do. When you sell a home to someone, that new owner can do whatever they choose to do with that new home. And God was saying, I am giving you into their hands. And now you are going to experience what the gods of this world really have in store for you. It doesn't mean that, that God abandons them completely. It doesn't mean that God nullifies the promises that he's made to them. He simply says, I'm going to let you experience the painful results of your sinful choices. Kind of like in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to follow. Where, where we read that, that the people knew God, but they rejected God. And, and, and multiple times in that passage, it says, so God gave them over. God gave them over. He let them experience the results of their sinful choices. And God will do that. I mean, we, we have this idea that sex outside of marriage is okay. And so God says, okay, I'll let you experience the results of sex outside of marriage. Venereal disease, gonorrhea, all of these other things that, that you may not have really wanted. The, the heartbreak, the pain, the hurt. But if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. But there are consequences with that. A homosexual lifestyle. Okay, if that's what you want, go for it. You do it. 
But understand, there are consequences with that. You want to get drunk and you want to party like, excuse the expression, but party like a fool? Then okay, go ahead and do that, but there are consequences to that. And so God says, I'm going to give you over. I'm going to let you experience the pain of the decisions that you've made. And so Israel begins to experience the pain and they call out to God. I mean, isn't that what we do? When we experience the devastating effects of our pain or our sin, the pain that comes from it, we cry out to God, God, take away my hurt. God, take away my pain. I'm sorry. But listen, there comes a point where God says, no, I'm not going to rescue you anymore. Wow. Did you hear that? I mean, that's what it says, right? Go cry out to the God you've been serving. I'm not going to rescue you. There comes a point when saying I'm sorry is not enough. You, you see, we have this idea that because we're saved by grace through faith, that, that we content, can continue in our sinful lifestyle every time it gets us in trouble, just simply saying, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. And God's going to go, okay, I love you. I'm going to dust you off. I'm going to clean you up. Come back. But there comes a point when God says no more. I'm going to let you experience the pain that comes from the choices you make. God is a patient God, but understand his patience is not never ending. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, it says, The Lord is slow to anger, is abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet, listen to what it says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, God is patient with us. But in the end, God is going to deal with with sin. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is slow, not slow keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, the Bible teaches, and listen to me, God doesn't want you to be sorry. God wants you to repent. And there's a big difference between being sorry and repenting to a holy God. And that leads us to the third truth we see. Genuine repentance inevitably leads us to removing our idols and serving God. Look at verses 15 and 16. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and they served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. The Bible says that they did three things. They acknowledged their sin. They didn't make excuses. They didn't sugarcoat it. They, they didn't try to justify it. They said, we have sinned. They admitted, we've wronged you, God. And then it says they got rid of their idols. That means that they turned from their sin. They said, we're not going to continue in this any longer. If you look at it before, you don't see anything about them removing their idols. They just said, God, we're sorry. Deliver us. 
But here we see they are now turning from their sin. And then they turn to God and begin to serve him. You see, when we repent, it always involves acknowledging our sin, turning from that sin, and turning to God and serving him. And whenever we repent, God hears. And we see that in verse 16. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So what did God do? God began to raise up a deliverer. A deliverer that they didn't expect. <laughs> a deliverer that they weren't ready for initially, but a deliverer nevertheless. And, and one of the things that we've discovered in the book of Judges is most often the deliverers are unlikely heroes. And we see that with this deliverer. And so that leads us to the fourth truth, and this is it, and that is this. We don't have to be victims to our past. Look at verse 17 uh, into chapter 11, verse 4, if you will, with me. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped at Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. So, so Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. Gilead had a wife who had other sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. And so evidently, Gilead did the good thing, the noble thing, the honorable thing. And, and when this prostitute had a son, he took this son into his home. And he raised this son along with his other sons from his wife. But the Bible says that, that when they grew up, they drove Jephthah away, saying, You are not going to get any inheritance in our family. They said, Because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, that is in the Gentile territory, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Now that word is adventurer sounds pretty good. Swashbucklers. Robin Hood, you know, those kind of things. But, but the word here literally means a bunch of no good guys that are looking to get into trouble. And so Jephthah has gathered around him a group of guys looking to get into trouble. And they begin to follow him. He becomes the leader of this gang. Sometime later when the Ammonites made war on Israel, let's stop right there. Now here's Jephthah. He is the son of a prostitute. But he came to live with his father. When he gets older, his half-brothers kick him out of the house. They reject him. They say, you're not going to have any of the inheritance that is rightfully due to us. So, so Jephthah goes to live with the Gentiles. And he becomes a, a gang leader. That's what he becomes. He becomes a gang leader. Now talk about a dysfunctional family. The son of a prostitute, hated by your half-brothers, kicked out of the house. You go live in a pagan land among pagan gods, and you gather around you a group of thugs, and you become their leader. This is the person that delivers Israel. Now, here's what you need to understand. You may have had a difficult past. 
But you're not the only one. And your difficult past doesn't need to be an excuse. You see, you can be an overcomer or you can be overcome by your past. The choice is yours. I imagine there are people here in this room right now who have had awful, terrible, painful past. But they have not let those past dictate who they are or dictate what they have become. You see, no matter how terrible your past, you don't have to be a prisoner to your past. So many people today see themselves as victims. We're victims of our upbringing. We're victims of our environment. We're victims of our socioeconomic background. We're victims of, well, well you name it. We're, we're victims. We've got this victim mentality. And because we're victims, we make excuses. Well, you don't know what it was to live with my parents. You don't know how I was raised. You don't know what I did without. I didn't have the money to, and we fill in the blanks, and we make excuses because we've got this victim mentality. But God says you don't have to be a victim. Just think for a moment of the lineage of Jesus and the people that we read about in the lineage of Jesus. Let's just think about the women in this lineage. Tamar, she was accused of being a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite who served false gods. Bathsheba, she was an adulteress. And yet God used each of these women in the lineage of Jesus to give us the Savior of the world. Don't let your past define you. Don't be a victim of your past. Overcome your past. So Jephthah is asked by the people of Gilead to become their leader, to to lead them to victory. So he does this, and initially he decides to try diplomacy. So he goes to the Ammonite king and says, why are you trying to fight against us? And he said, because you've taken our land. And Jephthah knows some history. He said, no, we didn't. This was never your land. This was the Amorite land. It wasn't your land. And we didn't take the Amorite land. They attacked us. We defeated them. And so, yes, we took what we had because they attacked us. And it was our God who gave us victory. And if your God is so powerful, then he'll give you victory. But understand, we haven't taken your land. So the Ammonite king comes and he prepares to fight against Jephthah and the army. And this leads us to the fifth truth. And it's the most important. If we allow our culture to influence our faith, we will always end up with devastating consequences. Now, let's read what it says in chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. And so Jephthah is now preparing to go and fight the Ammonite army. And it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now read the vow, listen to the vow. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return and triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's. And I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now don't miss verse 29. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's important. 
Because here he is, the Spirit of God comes upon him, and yet he makes this vow that we're going to see is a foolish vow. And so he goes into battle, God gives him victory, returns home, and listen to what happens in verse 34. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of tambourines. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried out, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Now, this is a difficult passage. And there are two basic views on what Jephthah's vow actually was. The, the more recent view is that he dedicated his daughter. He was, he was making two vows. He was going to dedicate whatever came out the door, and he was going to offer a burnt offering. That's the most recent view. But he didn't anticipate that his daughter was going to come out the door. He anticipated that a servant would come out the door. And when his daughter came out the door, he realized he's going to have to give his daughter, not as a burnt offering, but give his daughter in service to the temple, and she would die virgin, and he would never have children. That's the more recent view. But my question with that is, why was Jephthah so heartbroken? Why was he so distraught? Why, why did his daughter ask for two months to go spend time with her friends if the only thing that was going to happen is she was going to go and serve the Lord for the rest of her life? I mean, let's be honest. There are things worse than serving the Lord. I've met some pe- preachers that would tell you, man, this is purgatory. Serving the Lord, being in ministry. But let me tell you, for those of us who are called to serve, man, it's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. It's not something to to bemoan. It's not something to regret. It's a joy to be able to serve the Lord. And so this, to me at least, this interpretation doesn't make sense. The more historical view, the view that that was really held until really the last 150 years or so was that Jephthah made a vow that whatever, and the what was a who, because the pronoun was not a neutered pronoun, meaning an animal. It means whoever comes out this door, we will offer as a burnt offering. And then his daughter came out the door. And so here he was. He had promised to God that he would offer as a burnt offering whatever came out his door. And, and his daughter, his only child, came out the door. And now he realized that he was going to have to burn his only daughter on the altar. Now, how could he do that? How could he have made that kind of vow? Let me tell you how. Because he had been influenced by his culture. You see, if you wanted to please the gods and you wanted the gods to give you favor, then you had to make a sacrifice. And the bigger the sacrifice, the more favor you would incur. And so here's Jephthah. He is going against this Ammonite army and he knows I need God's favor. And so he says, God, whoever comes out this door, I will give to you as a burnt offering. He did this because he had been influenced by the culture. 
Now, to understand, listen, the reason I believe this is multiple, there's multiple reasons, but one of the things is because as we read through the book of Judges, we discover the people of God going deeper and deeper into sin, and they become darker and darker in their lives. And and so it's nothing for us to think that, that, that here's a man who offers his only daughter as a sacrifice to God to please God because later on we see a man who cuts up a woman and, and sends her body parts all over Israel. I mean, understand when we're influenced by the culture, there's no telling what we will do. He lets the pagan culture influence him more than the word of God. In Romans 12 verse 2, we're, we're told, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, now God's word clearly forbid human sacrifice. Leviticus 18 says, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 18 verse 10, let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. I mean, the Word of God clearly prohibits human sacrifice. But here's the problem. He knew his culture better than he knew the Word of God. And I am afraid that there are too many of us today who know our culture, what our culture believes, what our culture thinks, much more than we know what the Word of God thinks. How is it? How is it that so many of us who who say that we believe the Word of God, believe it's okay to to live together outside of marriage in a sexual relationship. How How can we think that? Because we've been influenced by our culture. How can we possibly justify homosexuality as as an acceptable, God-honoring lifestyle? Because we've been influenced by our culture. And the list goes on and on and on. How do we get to this place where we do vile, evil things in God's eyes? It's because we've been influenced by our culture more than we've been influenced by the Word of God. That's why it's so important. Listen, parents, grandparents, teach your kids the Word of God. Spend time with them. Give them a picture Bible. Start to read it to them. Get them in um, Northside Kids, Northside um, Little Kids. <laughs> Get them in their student ministry and teach them at home. That, that's, why, that's why the first value that we have as a church is biblical teaching. We believe the Word of God transforms lives. Listen. If you aren't regularly, systematically into this word, then the world is going to get into you. And you're going to be more influenced by the world than you are by the word. And so here was Jephthah. He was influenced by the culture around him. And he ended up sacrificing his daughter as a burnt offering to God takes us to the final truth. And that's this. God's favor isn't earned. Look at chapter 11, verses 39 through 40. It says, after the two months, because Jephthah's daughter said, Dad, before 
you carry out your vow, can I go and spend two months with my friends out in the mountains? And he said, yeah, and they went there. And she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. She was a virgin. From This comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Why did Jephthah feel the need to make this vow in the first place? Why did Jephthah continue with this vow, though God's word continually prohibited? Can I tell you why? The reason is he had no concept of the grace of God. He, he felt like he had to earn God's favor. But understand God's favor is never earned. It's always given through grace. The Bible says, not by works of righteousness which we have done. You know, sometimes we have this idea that, that, that this pastor, this spiritual leader who is being used of God, is being used of God because they are such a holy and, 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 and righteous person. And, and we hope that they are. But understand, God's favor isn't earned. I, I mean, if, if I start reading the Bible through 12 times in a year, that doesn't mean that, that God's going to bless my ministry more. If I spend three hours a day in prayer, which may be a wonderful, great thing, it doesn't mean that God's favor is going to shine on me more. If I decide to, to sell everything I've got and give it to the poor and live in poverty as I serve God, that doesn't mean that God's favor is going to shine down on me anymore. God's favor is a result of God's grace. And there are too many of us today who are trying to earn God's favor. And the reason he continued with his vow is the same reason he made the vow in the first place. He didn't understand the grace of God. He didn't understand that you can't please God through what you do. God just loves us and his grace is given to us freely because he loves us. And there are some of you here today that you may know the Lord, you may not know the Lord, but you're trying to earn God's favor. You're, you're thinking that if I can just get this habit out of my life, God will love me more. No, he won't. If I can just start tithing, God, God will love me more and then he'll bless me financially. No, he won't. I mean, is, is it good to be obedient? Yes. Is peace going to come to you when you live in the way God wants you to live? Yes. But God's favor is not the result of what you do. It's the result of grace. You can't earn it. And if you're here and you're trying to earn God's favor, you're trying to earn God's love, stop it. Accept it. God called Jephthah, of all people, a man of, uh, of a hard background from a dysfunctional family. He called him to lead his people to victory. He Gave him his spirit, and yet he was still so influenced by his culture that he sacrificed his daughter because he didn't understand God's grace. How many of us are sacrificing our kids to the culture because we haven't understood grace and we're not teaching our children the grace that is revealed in the Word of God?
What is it that's influencing your life today? Is it the Word of God? Or is it the world we live in? Are you trying to earn God's favor? Stop it. I want you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. And there are really three things that I want to address as we come to this time of commitment. The first one is this. With your head bowed, your eyes closed. If you're here and you come from a horrid background, you, you've had a difficult upbringing, my heart goes out to you. But it's time to quit making excuses. It's time to quit playing the victim card. It's, it's time to realize that that the power of God working in your life can overcome any circumstance in your past and give you victory. So if you're here today and you've been living the life of a victim, let God set you free today to be a victor. If you've been overcome, become an overcomer. Second, If you're here today and you're letting this culture that we live in, the world that surrounds us, influence you more than the Word of God. If you're spending more time being mesmerized by the world than you are pouring yourself into the Word, stop it. Because if you continue the way you are, you will lose your kids. You will lose your grandkids to the gods of this world. And then finally, if you're here and you're trying to earn God's favor, earn God's love, stop it. You can't. God's grace, God's love, God's favor is bestowed upon us as a gift. Receive it when you receive him. And let his power change you and guide you and direct you. Father God, we come before you as needy people. Asking you to work in our lives. Forgive us for making excuses. Forgive us for failing to realize that through the power of your spirit... We can overcome anything. Forgive us for being more influenced by the culture in which we live than the word of God that you gave us. Father, I pray today that we will make the commitment to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind as we let your word indwell us. Father God, I pray for those who have come here this morning trying to earn your favor I pray that their eyes will be open their heart will be open to the realization that your grace your favor is not earned it's received you want to bless us you want to give us victory but it's not because of what we do it's because of who you are. So Father, I pray today that anyone here who is 
came in trying to work their way into your favor will today humble themselves, acknowledge their sin, turn from their sin, and trust you completely. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.